you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We're going to look at verses 15 through verse 22 this morning. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I know many of you are preparing to send kids back to school uh, this week. Uh, And some of you as parents are probably pretty excited about that. (laughs) Others of you are a little disappointed, and I know uh, it's been a joy. We get to spend a little extra time with the boys um, during the summer. And so um, on one hand, we're we're a little sad about the summer ending. But but I want to do something special this morning. I want to pray for our teachers. And we have so many teachers here at Lenexa Baptist Church. And it's kind of near and dear to my heart because... For all my life, my dad uh, was a, or is, continues to be a public school educator. Growing up, he was an elementary school principal, and, and I know how seriously he took um, uh, praying over that school and, and seeking to be a witness in that school. And uh, he has a lot of really amazing stories about how God used him in that environment. And I got a sister-in-law who's a teacher, and I know many of you are teachers, and we, we just want to pray for you this morning. If you're an educator, if you're a teacher in any, any way, shape, or form this morning, uh, I want to ask you, would you just stand this morning? If you're involved as an educator um, in any way with our schools, would, would you stand? Do we have some in here? I see some up in the balcony. We're grateful for you. Amen. Stay standing. Stay standing. What we want to do is just pray for you this morning. If you're around some of these that are involved, would you just would you get over to them and just put a hand on them? We want to pray for them. We want to commission them as, as missionaries in that environment this morning. So if, you, if you're sitting near them, would you mind, um, by placing hands on somebody, we're just saying that you're not alone, that, that we're with you and we're praying for you as you seek to be a Christ-like witness in that environment. So let's just join together as a church family to pray for these educators. Father, I I thank you, uh, Lord, that you have saved us and and that you desire to use us in this world to be a light for you. That in whatever else we do in this world, our primary mission is to testify to the grace of Christ that has saved us. And I want to pray especially for these educators that will uh, go out as missionaries Some may have already started. They might be beginning this week. And regardless of their environment, they're called to be a light for you. And as this year begins and as they will face all kinds of struggles, all kinds of difficulties, and sometimes seek to be a light in the midst of of a lot of darkness, God, I pray that you would undergird them by your spirit and by your power. I, I pray that you would lead, guide, and direct them. I pray for the children in their care that will see them. And Lord, I pray that those kids, those children, those students, high schoolers, middle schoolers, elementary age children, that in these educators, they would see the light of Christ. And Lord, I pray, as Paul prayed, that you would open a door for the gospel. That God, you would give them in wisdom and discernment. And at the right moment, at the right time, in the right ways, Lord, they'd have an opportunity to speak of Christ. Lord, bless them as they begin this year. Watch over them, protect them, and use them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 And we will continue to pray for our teachers throughout the year. 
Well, we come to this text in Matthew 22, and it's been uh, a few weeks since we've been in, in Matthew, so it'd be good to, to, to kind of regain our bearings. You remember that we're in the final week of, of Christ's life, um, so everything from here on out is going to deal with the final week of Christ, ultimately culminating in his death and, and resurrection. And you'll remember the triumphal entry that Christ enters in as the conquering king, but he also enters in as the lamb, uh, the, the perfect lamb of God who is humbly giving himself for the people. And they don't understand that. They think that he's come to conquer the Romans when what he has ultimately come to conquer is the greater bondage of sin, Satan, and death. And the crowds, they love him. They're excited You remember he goes back into the temple area on Monday and he cleanses the temple. He, in essence, shuts down Old Testament temple worship. They've taken this place of God that was intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations and they've profaned it as a place for profiteering off the people of God and and Jesus has had enough and he shuts it down. On Tuesday, he enters back into the temple area And uh, that group of people, the religious leaders that can't stand Jesus, they are all over him. In in their minds, he's come in on their turf, and they're seeking to attack him, and they have all kinds of questions for him, and their questions are an effort to trip him up. They're not really coming to seek knowledge, but they're coming to accuse him. And so you remember, initially, they had some questions about authority, and this morning, they will bring up a question concerning taxes. So we'll talk a little bit about taxes this morning. Aren't you glad you came to church? Um, But taxes were no less controversial in Jesus' day uh, than they are in our day. But the, the real issue is not really taxes. It's much bigger than this. It's really about how you and I as Christians and these people, as the people of God, exists as citizens of heaven and still abide under earthly kingdoms? How do we navigate those waters in in a way that honors Christ and extends his kingdom? So with that in mind, let's just read the text. We'll pray over it, and we'll seek to work our way through it. Begin with me in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one for you're not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Father, we pray this morning that you would bless the study of your word. Lord, we need you this morning. All of us today need to hear your voice. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to obey. Lord, I pray that you would make the principles of this text very simple for us. I pray that I wouldn't muddy the water this morning, but your word would be clear, that we might apply it to our life. Our desire is not to simply be hearers of the word, not to just accumulate knowledge, but we want to be obedient. 
So Lord, we ask your blessing upon the study of your word this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the thing that that really jumps out to me again in this text is the opposition of the Jewish leadership. They are determined to kill Jesus. Here we find them again. They're plotting together about how they might trap him. And if you've been kind of following with us in Matthew, you know that this is not the first time. For quite some time now, they've been seeking to take Jesus out. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us at this point that they begin spying on Jesus. So they've developed some kind of surveillance program by which they might dig up some dirt to trap him. And now they've kind of put their heads together and they've developed a new plan They're not going to go themselves. I think the idea being that if we go, he'll recognize us because we've already been questioning him. So we're going to send some of our disciples in the hopes that maybe some new faces will surprise him and, and trip him up or cause him to say something while his guard is down. So they're sending some of their disciples, and they team their disciples up with the Herodians, which is a, a very odd alliance. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along. They disliked each other. They were enemies. The Pharisees were much more of a a religious group. They couldn't stand Rome. They didn't want to have anything to do with Rome. In fact, there's a faction of the Pharisees known as the Zealots. And they opposed Rome at every turn. And then on the other hand, you've got the Herodians. And they were much more of a political group. And they had formed somewhat of an alliance with the Romans for their own political and financial gain. And so the idea here is you have both politics and religion, two groups that are normally opposed together, united in their opposition to silence Christ. Does that not sound familiar? Politics and religion united in an effort to silence Jesus. So here these two groups join up, and and it really demonstrates the depth of their hatred, that we'll align ourselves with a people that we absolutely hate, simply with the goal of eliminating Christ. It really pictures before us again the depth of their hatred, that there's really nothing they will not do, no no depth to which they will not uh, descend in order to uh, eliminate and silence Christ. And it it begs the question, what is it about Jesus' life and ministry uh, that has brought out this kind of anger, this kind of hatred, uh, this kind of opposition towards Jesus? Because if you're just reading through the Gospels, you would say, why do they hate this guy so much? I mean, he blesses the nation. Here is a guy who heals the lame and the blind. He, he feeds 5,000. He's brought people back from the dead. Even in his teaching, there's nothing that, 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 that necessarily on the on a face value would cause us to say, whoa. I mean, most of this is an incredible blessing, and the nation recognizes it. They recognize him as one having authority. He's a blessing to the nation. So what is it? about Jesus' ministry that's brought out this kind of opposition and hatred. And I I think we've talked about this some before, but I think at the heart of their anger and their frustration, their opposition, is the sin of pride. And it was a good reminder to to me again this week that I think uh, the primary obstacle to anybody submitting to the lordship of Christ and knowing his salvation is the sin of pride. Uh, They don't want to bend the knee to Christ's lordship. They don't want to bend the knee to his authority. 
you remember they have set themselves up as the one ha- ones having authority. That, that, that we're the ones that people come to uh, with questions. That we're the ones who interpret the law. And here comes Jesus and he's demonstrating a whole other level of authority. And the people recognize it in everything that Jesus has done. In everything that Jesus has said. He has demonstrated that he is the final and divine authority that in fact he is God. And you remember, even in his miracles, he performed miracles like no one else over demons, disease, nature, and even death. In his teaching, he taught as one having authority. And so here are these religious leaders who have set themselves up as the authority, and now they are being confronted with the divine authority of God himself. And whenever a person, whenever a person is confronted With the divine nature of God, you really have one of two options. You're either going to bow the neck and rebel, or you're going to bend the knee and submit. And these religious leaders, they're going to rebel. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They don't want anybody telling them how to live. And that has always been the heart of sinful man. It's to rebel against the sovereignty and the authority of God. It's the essence of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the, the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. That the heart of sinful man has always been... We don't want God and we don't want Jesus or anybody else for that matter telling us how to live. Do we not see that in our culture today? We don't want anybody. And so they're not going to bend the knee in their pride. They're not going to bend the knee to his lordship. Not only are they not going to bend the knee to his lordship, but they're not willing to admit that they're sinners. You know, they've convinced themselves that God's in the business of, of creating some kind of elite social club of those who have attained to a certain level of spirituality, those who have checked the boxes of external religion. And then here comes Jesus demonstrating the heart, the true heart and character of God. And he says to them, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, if you know you're lost, if you're a leper, if you're like Zacchaeus, The knowledge that God has come to save sinners, that's good news, amen. But if you think you're good, that's tough to swallow. See, this is bad news for these guys because it means if they want to get to God, they got to admit that they're a sinner. They got to admit that they're not that smart, they're not that wise, and in fact, they're not that good. They are sinners. And they don't want to admit they're sinners. They'd rather boast in their own righteousness, and it will prevent them from knowing the salvation of Jesus Christ. Pride is the root of their anger, frustration, and opposition. It's preventing them from knowing Christ. And quite frankly, it's preventing some of you from knowing Christ today. The number one deterrent from people coming to faith in Christ is the issue of pride. And there's some of you here this morning, you don't want to bend the knee to Christ's sovereignty. You don't want to bend the knee to Christ's authority. You don't want anybody telling you how to live or what to do. And when you think of giving your life to Christ, you automatically begin to think of the things you're going to have to give up. And you know what? If you come to Christ, there are some things you're going to have to give up. But I'm here to tell you today what you'll gain in Christ Jesus far surpasses anything that you'll ever give up. 
One of the great lies of Satan is that following Christ is dull and it's boring and drudgery. And unfortunately, there's a lot of grumpy so-called Christians out there through whom I think Satan is working to deter, or deter people from coming to faith in Christ. But I hope and pray you would know today there's no greater joy in all the world than giving your life to Christ and submitting yourself to his lordship. And there's no greater adventure than following Jesus. I hope and pray if you're here investigating the things of God and the things of Christ that you would see in this church family that following Christ is the most joyful thing we could ever do. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. And still yet, some of you, you don't want to admit you're sinners. You know, people will turn to Christ for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they're confronted with a financial issue or a relational issue. They'll come to Christ. Kind of the idea, well, I might as well try Jesus. But if you come to Jesus, you need to know this morning that the very first thing that Christ will confront you with is the greatest issue of life, and that's your sin. When you come to Christ, he will always deal with the greatest need of your life, which is the forgiveness of your sins. And you cannot know the forgiveness of Christ until you're first willing to admit that you're a sinner. Meaning if you're here this morning and you think you're good enough and you somehow think that one day you're going to stand before God and he's going to be really impressed with all your good deeds and religious activities, then we can't help you this morning any more than Christ could help a rich young ruler who didn't want to admit that he's a sinner and his only hope was Jesus Christ. But if you're here today and you know you can't save yourself and you know that you're a sinner, boy, do we have a savior for you. And his name is Jesus. And he came to save sinners like me and like you. He came to do what you couldn't do. And that's to live a perfect and sinless life and to die on the cross for your sins. And you need to know today that if you would be willing to admit you're a sinner and bend your knee to his lordship and his authority, you today, by, by means of faith, you could know the salvation of God. You could be recreated from the inside out. You could have the Holy Spirit of God placed in your heart and you could have your eternal destination secure simply by placing your faith in Jesus but you can't come in pride. You must humble yourself. And these guys, their pride is their obstacle, and it's the root of their frustration and opposition towards Jesus. But we see their approach, secondly. Look at verse 16. It says, And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and, and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. And you can, you can almost hear the deceitfulness in, in, their, in their coming to Christ. That they, they really have no heart to learn. That they really aren't seeking answers to their questions. And Christ sees right through them. They, they, they may have fooled the crowds with their claims and their words, but they haven't fooled Jesus. Look at verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, Why are you trying to wear a mask with me? Why are you playing games? You're not fooling me. You can't hide. And they come, it's interesting, they come <laughs> questioning and examining Jesus. And what they will find out is that Christ is examining them. You know, that's really the story of men like C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel. 
who thought they were going to examine Christ in their arrogance and pride. And you know what they found out in the process? Christ was examining them. Once again, demonstrating you can't play games with God. He knows what's going on in your heart. Some of you are playing games with God. You make a lot of great claims and you have some knowledge in your head, but you have have no real heart for God. Well, you may be able to fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. He sees right through you. So in their approach, we see deceitfulness, but then we see their question. Look at what it says. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a a poll tax to Caesar or not? So you see how they've set him up. You're a great teacher. You, you tell the truth. You don't worry about what anybody says. You always tell the truth. Well, tell us about this whole poll tax deal. How do you feel about that? And in their minds, I think they finally believe they have a question that Jesus can't wiggle out of. It's a question that requires a yes or a no. If you, you watch um, uh, on the news channels where they bring on these politicians, and they always try to get them with a question that requires a yes or a no. They rarely get a yes or a no, but they try to back them into a corner. Well, that's what these guys are doing here. And they've asked him a question that was incredibly controversial. Taxes were so controversial. I mean, paying taxes as the people of God to a, to a pagan nation. Every time they paid a tax, it was a reminder that we're in subjection to this pagan nation. It was very controversial. And in fact, it was very practical. This is what they were talking about. It, it, listen, it's the same conversations that we still have today. Uh, that, that how do we exist as Christians within a nation that isn't always following God and in a nation that's, that, that sometimes is contrary to the Christian way of life? How do we do that? So it was a very practical question. It's a question that they were all asking. And it was also a tricky question. Because if Jesus says that you should, you, you should pay, their, pay the tax in their minds, he would betray his identity as Israel's national messiah. Remember, in their minds, that the Messiah comes to defeat the Romans, not to cooperate with them. So he's going to betray his identity as Messiah if he tells them to pay taxes to Rome. There's going to be a whole group of people out there that, that this is not, in political terms, this is not playing to his base. This is going to make his base really, really mad at him, and he's going to lose favor with with a large group of people. On the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, they can get him on record for a seditious activity towards Rome, which was punishable by death. So they believe they've got Jesus in a no-win situation. There's no one, uh, no way out of this. He either loses favor with the people or he loses his life to Rome. He can't win, they can't lose. Well, look at Jesus' response in verse 19. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus asked for a denarius, a coin similar in size to a quarter. They bring him the denarius. Jesus uh, essentially says that the answer to your question is incredibly obvious. It's, it's incredibly simple. Whose image is on this? Whose in, inscription is on this? Who's in charge? And their answer, Caesar. And Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, pay the tax. Jesus is incredibly clear here that just because you don't like what the Romans are doing doesn't mean that you don't have to pay taxes anymore. That just because we recognize God is sovereign and Christ is king does not preclude us from our respect and responsibility towards the governing authorities that God has established 
In fact, Paul will, will paraphrase this in Romans 13 when he says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's so clear. Jesus, Paul, pay your taxes. You may not like the system. Quite frankly, I don't like the system. I don't like our system. I don't think it's fair. Jesus doesn't give us an out. You may not like the way the money's being spent. Sometimes I don't like the way the money's being spent. You may not like who's in charge, but Jesus does not give you an out here. Pay your taxes. That our allegiance to Christ as king does not preclude us from our earthly responsibilities to those governing authorities that God has established over us. We're to be the best of citizens. We're to live for the welfare of the city. At this point, I think that the Jewish leadership was probably really excited. We got him. This is exactly what we were hoping for. And so I think they're about to run out and tell everybody, hey, he said yes. He told you to pay taxes. Can you believe this? He's told you to pay taxes. But before they can go run out and shout it to the rooftops, Jesus continues on and says, and render to God the things that are God's. In other words, on that coin might be the image of Caesar, But on your life is another image. And it's the image of God. And the image of God on your life is more clear than the image of Caesar on that coin. And God demands not just a a monetary tribute, but God demands your life. That we may give to Caesar what is justifiably his, but we do not render to him what solely belongs to God, and that is our lives and our worship. That we answer to a higher authority, and ultimate submission is only due to God. You want a good picture of this? You see it in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego living for God in a Babylonian culture that was completely opposed to the things of God. In fact, that Babylonian culture takes the best and the brightest and seeks to brainwash them. And you remember the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego essentially is, we will take your names and we will read your literature, but we will not worship your God. You know, eating that food, most believe it wasn't just about a healthy diet, That was food that had been sacrificed to idols. And by eating that food, they would have been symbolically stating unity with that deity. And they're saying, there's a line we will not cross. We'll be the best of citizens. We'll live for the welfare of the city as God has instructed us to. But we will not bend the knee to your God. So Jesus here, in many ways, I think this is a rebuke to the disobedience of the nation. I think he's saying to them, your problem is not that you got to give Caesar a task. The problem is you won't give God your life. See, they're focused on the wrong issue. Instead of worrying about their responsibility to Caesar, they should have been worried about their primary responsibility to God. In their minds, what was preventing them from being the nation that God had called them to be was this ugly rule of the Romans that was epitomized in the image of Caesar. And what Jesus is saying to them is what's preventing this nation from knowing the favor of God is not the rule of the Romans. It's the lack of God's reign in your heart. 
And I fear that if we're not careful, we'll make the same mistake as these religious leaders. That we might begin to think that if we could just change our government or, or elect some different politicians, that the church would all of a sudden become more effective and everything would be great. And I'm here to tell you that what is preventing the effectiveness of the church in this nation is not the Democrats, it's not the Republicans, it's not the Supreme Court, it sure isn't taxes. It's a lack of Christians who are completely sold out to Christ, his word, and his mission. And I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone. I've learned that, that God will not allow me to teach or preach something that I don't first live. And I love politics. And there's nothing wrong with being interested and involved as long as you keep it in its place. Last week, I was watching uh, those debates and uh, they didn't put me in a good mood. <laughs> and uh, I went to bed grumpy. Faith can tell you. She got to hear about all my complaints. And then the next day I was studying this passage. And God revealed to me, you're focused on the wrong things. You've taken something that's secondary and you've made it primary. And you've taken that which is primary and you've made it secondary. See, listen, anytime we become so preoccupied with the kingdoms of this world that it diverts our attention from evangelism and seeing men and women come to faith in Christ, we've taken what's secondary and we've made it primary. And whatever your political views or agendas, they must always be a distant second to your submission to Jesus Christ, the King of all kings. And it doesn't mean that you don't believe what you believe and believe it strongly. But we got to be careful that we don't get so preoccupied with our political views or agendas that it creates us a barrier between us and the opportunities that the Lord might give us to share the gospel with somebody who may have a completely different view than you. You know, it's interesting, in Jesus' group of disciples, um, you've got Matthew, Levi, who was what? He was a tax collector. He worked with the Romans. That's how he made his living. He's an IRS guy. <laughs> how would you like to have an IRS guy on your team? And it's kind of funny when you think about it because he was a money guy, but who did they put in charge of the money? They gave it to Judas. They didn't trust the IRS guy. We don't trust him. He might know money, but we ain't giving it to him. And within that same group, you had a guy named Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a fraction of the, of the Pharisees. They're a nationalistic group that were completely opposed to all things Roman. In fact, most believe that they didn't pay any taxes at all. They just said, we're going to rebel. So to some extent, you've got a big government guy and a small government guy in the same group of disciples. And I may be reading too much into it, but I would imagine from time to time they had some pretty heated discussions. <laughs> and when their political views became the primary thing in their life, what happened? There was division. 
But where did they find unity? They found unity in Jesus Christ. I think this is so important for us to hear today because we live in a nation that is more divided than I think it's ever been. Not since the Civil War. I don't know. I haven't lived through all history, but as best I can tell, this is pretty bad. You know, in John 17, part of Jesus' prayer is that you and I would be one that the world might know that God sent him. You know, with the word of God throughout the Bible, whenever God gives his word, there's always a miracles that demonstrate that the message is of divine origin. With the giving of the law, miracles. With the giving, the speaking of the prophets, you had miracles. With Christ, miracles. The miracles demonstrate that the message is divine. And now you have today, you have the church, and do we have a message? Yeah, we got a message. To tell the world that there's salvation and freedom in Christ. And we also have a miracle. You know what that miracle is? It's the unity of the church. That these people actually love each other. Amen? Hypothetically, to a degree, somewhat. We love each other, right? That's the miracle that only Christ can produce. You see, out there in the world, it's KUK State, it's OU Texas, it's Auburn, Alabama, it's Democrat, Republican. Out there in the world, it's black and it's white. Out there in the world, it's rich or poor. That's the world. But in here, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. But it's only possible in so much as we make sure that Christ remains primary. doesn't mean that we don't occasionally take our stand on some political issues. But my prayer has always been that Lenexa Baptist Church would be most known for Christ and the gospel. And can I just ask you personally, what's primary in your life today? I'm not saying don't have things that you believe in strongly and firmly. I'm not saying you don't have other interests. But if we were to take your Facebook feed and throw it up on the screen this morning, what would it reveal about what's primary in your life? It's why I think we've got to be so careful as Christians. It doesn't mean that we don't hold some views very strongly. But I don't know about you. I don't want to do anything that would put up a barrier that would prevent me from sharing the gospel with somebody who may not share my same views. We've got to keep Christ primary. Then lastly, just look at their reaction, verse 22, very briefly. It says, in hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. They were amazed, but they left. Do you know what I believe? I believe these guys, some of these guys, not all of them, but I think some of them are so close to salvation. They're hanging out with Christ. They're seeking to trap him. And there's no chinks in his armor. I mean, when you think about this, they're the religious elite. They're the theologically trained. They're the Harvard grads, the Princeton grads. This guy, in their minds, is just a carpenter from Nazareth. And yet, every time we come to him, he nails us against the wall, and we leave with our tails between our legs. 
And I believe they're beginning to sense conviction in their heart, but they left. And some of you, maybe you're here this morning, you're watching online, and and you've been investigating the things of Christ, and maybe initially you were put off by the things of God. But you sense that Christ is working in your heart today. My prayer is not that you would be amazed and leave, but that you would be amazed and trust. That you'd bend the knee. You'd be willing to admit this morning that you're a sinner, that you might know Christ's salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And yet you loved us. God, I pray this morning if there's anybody here that maybe they've been investigating the things of Christ. God, I pray that you would move in their heart this morning to convict them of their sin. Your word says it's your Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and justice. That we are sinners. And there's only one who is righteous, and it is Christ. I pray this this morning that that individual, whoever they might be, wherever they might be this morning, they would run to Christ as the only means of salvation. They would trust in him with all their heart. They would believe on Christ in this morning, today, right now, wherever they're at, they'd be saved. Lord, for those of us that, that do know you, I pray that Christ would always be primary. That we might have a lot of other interests, other views or agendas, but I pray that Christ and his rule and his reign would always be primary in our hearts. And I pray that a watching world would see your unity displayed in this people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.